0: Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is a founder and director of the Merciful Service of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here is Pastor Brad. Good morning. I'm sorry I'm a little late, but I'll try and make up for it by not keeping you too long. Yes. Uh, yeah, I came, just came from the hospital to see Mark Markham, and he's n- in ICU, not doing very well, Has some, the, the, have to stop the chemo treatments for a while, and then make some decisions, some really tough decisions, so he's uh, not had a good good few weeks, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, Mr. Brad, is he there because of his cancer, or is he sick sick? It's cancer. It is the cancer. Yeah. Yeah, they, they really believe the chemo's causing him to not do well. It's it's depleting his magnesium, and and he's just like totally depleted, and it's just really serious. So they no sooner give it to him, and he's depleted again. So they're stopping that for a month, and then they'll reevaluate. But someone was asking where his cancer is. Well, it began in the intestinal area. <laughs> I really don't technically. I can't tell you if it began. Somewhere in those inner organs. It's I think it did, yes. I think it did. Yeah. So keep him in your prayers. Uh, good spirits, though. Good. He has a great spirit and a great testimony and really wants everyone who comes into his room to see the beauty of the Lord and his faith. So keep him in your prayers. But we're in chapter 11 today. This is section 2, part 2 of chapter 11. We're working through this, uh, kind of methodically through this chapter about about the resurrection of Lazarus. Last week, I want to pick up on a couple of things that that were left off with last week. Mark had a good question last week that I couldn't answer immediately, and I told you I'd check on it. You know, I talk to you about the Greek words sometimes here, and so we want to know, last week when I talked about the word John could have used, you know, really three different words he could have used, two other words that talk about, when he talks about miracles, if you remember those. Simeon was the one I said that he uses in his gospel. And uh, whereas two of the others talk about great powers or works of power. But John always wants us to see the deeper meaning of things. Not just the surface meaning of things. Yes, these miracles that Jesus performs are great powers. They're the power of God, which we're about to see in this chapter. Especially with the ultimate power of raising the dead. But John wants us to see the deeper meaning, so he doesn't talk about great signs of power or great wonderful works of power. He talks about signs, and that word semeon I taught you last week, the best place to find why John, even though he, so he doesn't say, and this, like last week we are talking about this, it wasn't in chapter 11 where we're reading, but if you go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 11, that's the first time John uses it, and in, in the context he uses it in sets the pace for his whole gospel so in chapter two, eleven, if we go all the way back there and just look it says this it says this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him now, that was the first of the seven signs remember we talked last week John has seven signs of all the miracles Jesus did he chose seven, and they were each, he talks of them as signs because they point to a deeper meaning. Yes, they're what happened, he turned water into wine, but like we talked about last week, that has a meaning about the kingdom of God. So, the signs, that word Samuel, you see it here, right here in uh, John chapter 2. And then later in John chapter 12, we'll see that word again. In John chapter 21, we'll see that word again. And John always uses it as a point of saying, these are signs so that people will believe who Jesus is, that he is uh, the, the Messiah, that he is the, he is God, and uh, the kingdom has come upon him. So I just wanted to kind of bring that back to focus a little bit. And then... As we pick up the story this week, we're we're ready for verse 17. So I'll review slightly with you. Remember the story is that Jesus Jesus had left Jerusalem and Judea to go to the Bethany beyond the Jordan, the place where he was first baptized, kind of to rest and recover and get away from those that were trying to seek his life back there in Judea. And word comes by messenger that Lazarus is gravely ill. His sisters have sent this message and uh, we know that Jesus uh, stays two more days there where he is before he goes back. He sent word, hey, this is not going to be for uh, the bad. It's God is going to be glorified. Uh, John uh, gives Jesus the words of response that this will not end in death. This is going to be for the glory of God. So a little bit of hope there in that message. But what we learned today as we follow this, as Jesus has turned now and decided to go back a couple of days later. He says, let's go back to, to uh, Jerusalem, to Judea, to Bethany, where Lazarus lives. And the apostles are like, wait a minute, we can't go back there. Remember, they're trying to kill us back there. And we saw Thomas exercising a little bit of uh, faith in saying, come on, let's go, that we may die with him. And there's a little bit of everything in that statement. A little bit of uh, courage, maybe, but also a little bit of fear because he's certainly lacking a little bit of faith in saying, okay, if we go back, I know we're going to die, but at least let's go die with Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So he's very loyal in that sense and trying to encourage everybody it's better to be with Jesus and die than it is to stay here and live without Jesus. So that's kind of where we left the story off. And as we see in verse 17, um, Jesus is on his way back now, and he gets, he gets too close there. And it says, uh, so let's pick up the story in verse 17. I'm just going to read through verse 27 to begin with. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary sat in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. He who is coming into the world. Let's stop right there for just a moment. and Think about this dialogue between Jesus and Martha. Now, when Jesus gets there, John gives us a note here of timing. Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. Okay, so how do we know that's accurate? Because we know that when the messenger came, Jesus decided to take another couple of days to stay, and then another day for the journey, and then on the, he's dead on the fourth day. Four days in the tomb. That tells us what? It tells us that Lazarus died right after the messengers left. When, when Martha and Mary decided to send word to Jesus, our brother is ill, the one whom you love, remember? That statement, the one whom you love is ill. Please come. You know, playing on his emotions. This is this is Lazarus. You know, you have this close relationship with him. Please come. He died soon after that. So Jesus is waiting two days. Fourth day in the tomb to make a point. How many days did Jesus spend in the tomb? Three. Let Lazarus go in four times to make a very important point. There is no doubt in anyone's mind. This man is dead. As we see a little bit later as we get into the scriptures, we're going to be talking about the stench and everything. He's dead. No confusion. Jesus is going to prove to everyone he's Lord of life. Now, it's only about two miles from Jerusalem to Bethany. Now, Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem. He was actually beginning over here in Bethany beyond Jordan. So he puts a little note there for our purposes. Why does he tell us Bethany was near Jerusalem? About two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. What does that tell us? Why does John give us that little note that Bethany and Jerusalem are so close? Number one, because Jerusalem's the hotbed. That's the place where everybody wants to kill Jesus, and it's close by. Number two, these mourners. Who are these mourners? Bethany's a little tiny village on the other side of the Mount of Olives. But who are these mourners? It says they have come from Jerusalem. But it doesn't tell us that we're supposed to know that. It says Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them. In that day, mourners were professionals. I mean, they actually had people who had the. I won't. I don't. Don't believe they were paid for it. But it was their culture to. Go and mourn with people. It could have been people you don't even know. Oh, there's a death in the family. Let's go mourn with them. When they would have funeral processions, there would be loud wailing and weeping and mourning in the procession. And they would actually, it was cultural to just do that uh, in the Jewish culture. So these mourners have come from Jerusalem. We're going to hear about them a little bit more as we study here. But I want you to hear that those are people I'm sure many of them knew them, but they're also just people from Jerusalem that have come, and they're there for a reason. They're there to offer their, their ministry of bereavement, if you will, to this uh, beautiful family that's lost their brother. Now, as Jesus is approaching, it tells us that he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So clearly, as he was getting close, We see uh, word comes to him. Somebody probably stopped him. Hey, you know, by the way, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. He's dead now. Of course, we know that Jesus already knows that, but they don't. And as they're going forward, it says that when Martha, verse 20 says, when Martha heard. So what can we assume is happening in this little story here? Jesus is not in their city yet. He's still on the road getting there. He gets word. Death has already occurred. And then it says, Martha heard. And where's Martha? Back in the city at home. So what's happening there? People are going back and forth. Somebody's running back and forth. Somebody noticed Jesus was on the way. Somebody got word, told him what's doing. And somebody must have got word back to Martha. Went back to her home and said, oh, by the way, Jesus is almost here. Okay. So what is Martha's response to learning that Jesus is coming? He's almost here. What's What does Martha do? She went and met him. And And her sister Mary, did Mary go with him? No, she stayed home. She She stayed home, home. yeah. So Mary stayed home, Martha went. So he has the first encounter with Martha. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Think about that phrase. How do you think she delivered that line? How would you deliver that line? She'd be mad that he was late. Yeah. Would she maybe have a little madness that he was late? Maybe there's a little bit of frustration and anger in there. Still being very respectful though, isn't she? Lord. Lord. I mean, that's a huge title, of course. But you can't help but hear a little angst in her voice and probably a little frustration. If you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then in verse 22, verse 22 is an interesting Phrase, and even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What's Martha doing here? She's exhibiting, one, she's exhibiting faith. Okay, she's exhibiting some level of faith. Is she asking, I know that if you would just say the word, you could raise him from the dead. She's not asking that though. She's asking more about the kingdom of of heaven. She's asking more about... She's saying, I, I think what she's saying... We can tell that. The reason I can tell that is because as the narration continues here, Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know. He'll rise again on the last day. See, it's not even in her mind that Jesus is about to or could raise him from the dead right now. It's not even in her mind. She confesses him as Lord. They've been believers. They've been followers. She says, I know, even now, whatever you ask of God, God will do. And so she's asking, please, give my brother a place in the kingdom. You know, what, what, what else could Jesus do after the death? If she's not asking him to raise him from the dead, she's saying, make sure he has a good place in paradise, a good place in the kingdom. That's where her heart is right now. Just make sure that my brother has a place in the kingdom. Because we see this, this is a very poignant chapter that we want to read slowly and we want to consider the dialogue slowly because it's a chapter of life that we all must walk through. Everyone in this room has pretty much seen their loved ones die at some point in life. But we're all continually walking through this valley of the shadow of death. As we continue to walk through, the psalmist in Psalm 23 says that famous line, the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So just what is the valley of the shadow of death? Think about that out loud a little bit. What is the valley of the shadow of death? Is it just the period of time that we see our loved ones sick and dying? Or could it be more? I'm going to tell you what I think it is. I think it's the whole life. I think the valley of the shadow of death is this whole life. From cradle to grave. I think that's the valley of the shadow of death. And the writer of Psalms says, We fear no evil, for your rod and your staff are with us. Because all living things die. And from birth, we it can rightly be said, we're born to die. We're going to, you know, our bodies are reproducing cells, and we're growing, 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 and at some point we start to decay, decay, decay. It's different for everyone. Life is different for everyone. But yet there is that knowledge from within ourselves, in our humanness, and our hum, human, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, Um, cellular being, whatever, you know, medically, biologically, everybody, we're in a process of decay in some form from the time we're born, which is mind-boggling. Yes? Don't you feel it more, I mean, to me, the valley of the shadow of death I think is when you are going through that with somebody that is actually in the process of dying and Yes, it's that, it's that too. Yeah. OK, What I want to raise our awareness to is it's not that only. It's that too. And it's that when you feel it the most. when you're literally, as Mary and Martha are here once their brother got sick, where they feel it now. See, the truth is, when we're well, we don't feel it. But the secret to the Christian way, the secret to the the Christian life, the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ, as he's going to say in John 14, is to recognize that we are in this valley of death and to recognize when death really occurs and when life really occurs. I know I'm being a little cryptic here, but it's going to all unfold before us, okay? I'm going to tell you that I don't think death is just what we think it is. I don't think it begins when we think it does. And I don't think life, eternal life, begins when we think it does. Our nature is to think when our bodies take our last breath, that's death. And somewhere right around there is when eternal life begins. I don't believe that. and I don't think Christ wants us to believe that. I believe Christ has given us, John especially, in this beautiful gospel full of signs, has given us road signs along the way to even words out of Jesus' mouth to show this. So keep that tucked away as we kind of go through this discussion this week and next week. Keep that tucked away. So for now, let's come back to the discussion. Martha has faith that he is somehow with God and somehow whatever he asks of God, God will do. And so she wants to know that he has her brother has a place in paradise. And so Jesus says, yes, your brother will rise again, she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And I find that a very curious phrase, the resurrection at the last day. That right there, that curious phrase, shows that she's a disciple of Jesus. Okay, Because that was not a common Jewish phrase, the resurrection at the last day. That's something she's picked up from Jesus' teachings. In, in the Jewish faith, there was this understanding that there is a life, there is a world to come, But even when death came, there was no strong teaching of resurrection in the Old Testament. In fact, by the time of Jesus' day, there were some camps of believers that didn't believe in the resurrection. Like the the Sadducees, I think it was. The Sadducees did not really believe in a resurrection. Um, So there's been no definitive teaching on resurrection in this Old Testament uh, faith. So there's a little ambiguity there. But she's, she's using a curious phrase. I know he'll rise again on the resurrection of the last day. She's heard Jesus teach that. That's one of the central messages of the kingdom of God. That, that we will all rise again on the last day. But Jesus said to her something interesting. In verse 25, this is a phrase that, this is a verse and a phrase that I use over and over and over again. I don't think I've ever done a funeral service without that verse. Because this is powerful. Jesus said, she's talking about resurrection. I know he's going to rise on the resurrection of the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And the life. Not all, not all manuscripts have the life in there. But they all have the resurrection. I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. These are the most amazing words. Jesus Christ is telling us right here, as he was telling Mary, yes, there is this thing called death, but even though we die, if we believe in him, we really don't die. Wow, that's mind-boggling it was mind-boggling to them, it's mind-boggling to us unless we seek to really understand what he's saying here. How can Jesus say, I am the resurrection? What have we learned about God in Christ when we talk about time and eternity and the presence of being? How can Jesus say, I am the resurrection? What is he saying when he says that? This is deep stuff. So if I'm asking a lot of rhetorical questions, don't feel don't feel bad if you don't know the answer because we, we have to really dig deep to find this. Maybe because he died and he rose again for us and he is the only way that we will have life through him. Yeah. In their in their time in chronology he hasn't died yet. Oh. But in his but in his in his life from all of eternity, of course he has. Yes. You know. But, but they so, don't know that. They don't know that yet. But he's teaching them a very important point. You're right on track. I am life. I am. He's saying, I am the present being. I am. Remember those words, I am, in the Greek. Ego me. All the way back to God. I am who I am. We've learned that every time Jesus uses that word, he's using the same phrase that God used way back in the Old Testament. I am who I am. I am. Meaning I am resurrection because I am life and I am the only thing that is truly present. You and I aren't present. We've talked about that a couple times. You and I aren't present, are we? Some people think my mind's not present a lot of times. <laughs> but but you know, we're we're we we think we're here in the moment, but the minute we realize we were here in the moment, that's the past. We're constantly becoming the future. Every moment. You see there what is present? It's, it's where time does where it's where there is no time. You know, the, the wish time could stand still sort of thing, you know? It's where it's the life of God. God is the present. He's the only present. He was before all worlds and will be after all worlds. That's why scripture says, from age to age. Okay? Unto the ages of ages. Because there is no end to God. There's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. And he's always present. Always and everywhere present. That's beautiful. That's, That's just, that's bone chilling stuff there. And Jesus says, I am the only real presence of life there is. And I am the resurrection. In other words, in me, and if you believe in me, you really never die. So therefore, if you're in me, if you're, Paul uses the phrase in a lot of his epistles, to be in Christ. In Christ. If you believe in Christ, if you're living this present life, this current life, this physical fleshly life, if you're living it in Christ, you are fully alive. And death cannot hold you. You You have life eternal now. So let me take you all the way back. To one of my favorite scriptures that I almost never do a funeral without that scripture too. John chapter 5 verse 24. What did Jesus tell us in John chapter 5 verse 24? He said, truly, truly I say to you. That whoever believes in him who sent, whoever hears my word. And believes in him who sent me. That's God the Father. Whoever hears my words, Jesus' words, and believes in him who sent me, that's the Father, has, present tense, has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Now let's put these two chapters together, chapter 5 and chapter 11. What is death and what is life? When does death happen? When does eternal life happen? Let's try and answer those questions this morning. If we get nothing else done but that, that's what we want to accomplish this morning. What is life? Life is is the life of God. There is no life outside the life of God. God is the author of all life, okay? And Christ is the creator. We know that Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is life. Nothing is alive outside of him. Okay? So any life, even a life that doesn't believe in him, you know, somebody that says they don't believe, I'm, somebody that says they're an atheist, they still have life. Because God's breath is in them. Remember the creation story? And God breathed. He formed a little human being, but it was only when he breathed into it that it became alive. So it's life has really nothing to do with this physical lump of clay. Does it? It really doesn't. We think life has to do with a beating heart, breathing lungs. I mean, we think of the movement of our tissues and our cells, but really life has to do with God's breath. If he gives it, it's alive. If he withdraws it, it's not. Okay, so this lump of clay, what is death? What does Jesus say is death? In John five twenty four, what does he say is death? He says, he who hears my word Remember, we've learned that that word hearing in the Greek means to obey. He who hears and obeys my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. So what was death? The way Jesus explained, what was death? It was a blink of an eye. It was that moment when you crossed from not believing to believing. You with me? He who believes. And that's what Jesus is saying here in 11, 25. He who believes shall never really die. You're saying death and eternal life are happening at the same time? Yeah. As soon as you believe. Exactly. We crossed, in Jesus' words, we crossed out of death and into life. We, we step out of one and into it. How do we cross out of death? Because he's saying we've always been dead. <laughs> we've been dead since we entered this world. We're human beings. We don't have eternal life unless he gives it to us. We have a very limited life in this world until we have the life of Jesus Christ. Then we have eternal life. So we're trained to think, it's natural, we're just trained to think that when our loved ones die and we lay them in the ground, and we, we, then they have eternal life. No, they've had it ever since they believed. They've had it ever since they believed. Now we know why we can pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Wherever God's will is done, that's where His kingdom is. Okay, wherever God's will is done, that's where His kingdom is. God's kingdom is here and now. God's kingdom is not just then and there. It will be his kingdom when we all get to heaven, like the old hymn said, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Yes, amen, hallelujah. will—that That is his kingdom. But this is his kingdom now too. You can't separate his kingdom. He's Lord over all. Just like you can't really die. Okay? So, I know this is deep stuff, but when you get it, when you get this, it will affect, the way you live the balance of your earthly life. It will help you to no longer fear physical death. So when we start speaking of death, what we need to really do is we need to speak of physical death. Okay? Not spiritual death. Physical, yeah, physically we're all going to die, physically. But that's not who we, we're not just physics. We're spirit, soul, mind, body. We're all of it wrapped up into one. And yes, we will lay down a portion of it. Until, like like Martha says, I know that he'll he'll be resurrected in the last day. What did she mean? She meant that she truly believed that on the last day, whenever that is, she'd been taught, hearing Jesus talk this way, that her brother's body's going to get resurrected. She really believed that. We know that Jesus taught that way because we know Paul speaks about it in his letters. He talks about it very explicitly. He says that, you know, we don't want you to be ignorant. And the Thessalonian letter said, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep. For those who are asleep in Jesus, at the trumpet of God, the archangel comes, and Jesus will step out, and the dead in Christ will rise. First, he says. Then we're, we who are alive will be caught up to meet them. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And he says, comfort one another with these words. That's, I think that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. can't remember exactly. The chapter and verse. But but you see, this is the teachings of Jesus. Martha's heard this before. And she says, I know there'll be a resurrection in the last day. And Jesus has given her new truth today. New truth that she can't grasp yet, but she's about to. And that new truth is, He hasn't really died. Because I hold His life in my hands. And I'm going to raise this body back up. So, She says, yes, Lord. He he asks her a very important, in in the end of verse 26, Jesus says, do you believe this? Okay? Let me make a point here. Jesus does not say, okay, Martha, do you understand this? (laughs) That would be a different question, wouldn't it? Can we believe without understanding? You bet we can. It's called faith. Okay? And he's not asking her to understand. He's asking her to believe. And she says what? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. And she confesses here. She makes a confession. Yes, I believe. And she confesses what she believes. She doesn't say, yes, I believe. I understand. You're going to blah, blah, blah. She says, yes, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. That is a beautiful phrase. It's a curious phrase. She sees, you know, that when, when, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am, Peter says that same confession. You are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. And then she says, you're the Son of God who's coming into the world. And that's a very uh, active sentence. It doesn't say came into the world coming into the world. I don't think Martha clearly didn't understand the theology of what all she was saying there. But I think John records it in a very deep theological way. What does coming into the world mean? How, how is Jesus was born as a baby in a, 33 years ago. What does she mean? He's coming into the world. Why does John choose to write it that way? Because remember the present present tense, Jesus is always coming into the world. Jesus is always present, always here. You can never speak of him as Cain. Okay? He's always present, always here. So that even when he goes in the ascension, okay, when he physically ascends back to heaven as we get in the book of Acts and we see, we know that he sends his spirit. Jesus is always here in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, Let's let's continue a little bit because the story continues. In verse 28, Now when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying quietly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, meaning Mary, were with her in the house, consoling her, they saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Let's stop right there for just a minute see what's happening. Mary, Mar- Martha decides... She's hearing amazing things from Jesus. I'm sure she doesn't understand everything, but she knows she's in the presence of the Son of God. She's confessing she believes. She's got to go get Mary. We can't leave Mary out of this. I don't know what's going to happen, but we can't leave Mary out of this. She goes and gets Mary, and it says she goes and gets her quietly. But why does John throw that in there? Or maybe yours says, secretly. Privately. Some of yours might say privately. She, she wants, this is very poignant. She wants, you know, we've got all these mourners here. There's a house full of mourners from Jerusalem. They're professional mourners that have come to comfort them and console them. And their job is to follow them wherever they go, to be with them and to be their comfort. And, and Martha's like, I just want Mary. I just want my sister. I'm going to go to her privately and tell her this. But you can't keep it private. <laughs> so what happens when Mary jumps up and runs out? Everybody runs out and follows her. Okay. So, and it says right here, as we, as we go on, it says, they rose quickly to go out and follow her, supposing that she was going to the tomb and weep. See, that's their job. Their job is to go with her to the tomb. If she's going to go to the tomb and weep, their job is to go with her and weep with her. Okay. And, and so now we carry on. It says, then Mary, verse 32, then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Quote, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now, didn't we hear Martha say that? We did, didn't we? You know, there's an, I want to stop and make a Greek comment here, okay? If we, re, if we just read that in English, does, and, and it reads the same as what Martha said. Did you, does anyone's read differently? Does any English Bible read differently? Because I sure didn't check them all but there's a fascinating difference in the Greek. In the Greek, it reads this way. I've written it out here so I can follow with you. Okay, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What Mary said, what John records Mary said in the Greek is, Lord, my brother, if you'd been here, would not have died. What'd you hear in the difference? What'd you hear? Okay, let me say it again. Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says, Lord, my brother, if you had been here, would not have died. There's a difference in the way the sentence structure is, and it it speaks to us of a little difference in their, it speaks to us of the difference in the temperament of the sisters, what they're feeling, okay? Mary's is much less of an accusation and more of a, of a, okay. uh, you can tell she's probably out of breath. Lord, Lord, my brother, if you'd been here, he, he wouldn't have died. It's more you know, like a plea. it's more like a plea. Like, yeah, like Lord, my plea. brother. It's astonishment. It's plea. It's it's a little less accusing. It's a little less matter of fact. So it's interesting how John wrote those differently. But English translators miss that, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I wish they would have turned that around because I, I think those little clues that John gives us are important. Um, so, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping. Okay, now where did it tell us that Mary was weeping? It didn't. Except that if we'd read that in the Greek and we thought this, Lord, my brother. You can hear her gasping. You can hear her. There, There's the weeping. We know she's 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 disturbed. She's troubled, she's upset, she's hurt, she's in anguish. And, and not to say that Martha's not, they're just totally different personalities as we saw in the beginning. You know, she, The beginning of their relationship that we see in the Gospel of Luke, Martha's always the one cooking, busy cleaning, getting everything ready, and Mary's the one sitting at Jesus' feet. <laughs> Both are good. Both are needed. They're just different. And And so here it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, that's their job, remember, to cry with her, to mourn with her, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. The shortest line in all the Bible then, Jesus wept. Verse 35. Jesus wept now so the Jews said verse 36 see how he loved him but some of them said could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying here's a, an astonishing phrase at the end. that's the last verse we'll go through today there's an astonishing phrase here could not this one who opened the eyes so some people are getting the faith they're figuring this out man the guy can open the eyes of the blind there's nothing he can't do a man born blind. Couldn't he have kept him from dying? Now they're still not thinking raised from the dead. They're thinking couldn't he have kept him from dying? But let's come back to this. We need to learn just a little more Greek words this morning. Very, very important. Until I studied this passage in the Greek, I don't think I ever understood it. Ever. And I'm not sure I've ever heard a minister or a teacher teach it, what I'm about to tell you. Um, And so it's not me. I'm not the genius that figured this out. Great commentators who can write in Greek figured it out. Read and write in Greek. When it says in verse 35, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who were weeping with her, he was deeply moved. And then it tells us Jesus wept. But we need to understand two different Greek words. What's the word for weeping? Okay. And wept. And what does it mean when it says Jesus was deeply moved and troubled? Okay, so let's think about those two things. Let me get my pen out here. Um, do you guys, does your version say anything? Does anybody have a version that says anything other than uh, deeply moved in spirit and troubled? Yours says disturbed. What, what else does it say? Does it say anything besides disturbed? What does it say? Read that portion. He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Greatly. So they're trying to bring both of those together. Greatly disturbed, troubled, deeply moved. Okay. one says, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay. The uh, the King James, or the, the New King James, is, uh, can speak to it right here. Let me read it to you out of the New King James here. Uh, <laughs> slip over to it. I am doing Okay. Area here says this. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And I believe the uh, I believe the King. Does anybody have the King James? What is yeah. yours, say? Yeah. It says groaned. Right. I was going to say I believe it said same. There's some that even there's one version that says. Um, and I can't remember which one it is right now, but it says he was indignant in his spirit. Anger. Yours says anger. Yeah. Anger in his spirit. Say, read it for us. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. A deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. See, now now here's the Greek word. That's a kind of where I have to write it up here because it's a, It's kind of an odd, hard hard to pronounce. I'm just going to write the English transliteration here. Uh, E-M-B-R-I-M-O. Let's see. (laughs) E-M-B-R-I-M-A-O-M-A-I. That's a mouthful. Okay. Now, you would pronounce it Embrima-O-M-A-I. Embrima-O-M-A-I. What, what does it mean, though? It means it's used in the New Testament several times. I, I think five times. And it's used in classic ancient literature a lot, Greek. I mean, it's a valid Greek word. And you know, one of the things, I'll tell you what it's used for in, in, in a lot in literature. You, you've heard of a, if a horse. If a horse is, uh, is, is ready to charge or it's you know, it snorts. You ever, you ever see the image of a horse that's snorting, you know, or a bull that's snorting and ready to charge something? Okay, kicking the ground, yeah. That's the word in Greek they use in English in Greek literature. In the other gospels, in Mark and Matthew, and the other gospel, we hear the same word used with Jesus when it says, and Jesus strictly warned them, or Jesus sternly told them, or scolded them. Now, how does that understanding of that word change this image? And Jesus was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit, and Jesus wept. We're going to connect these, okay? Now, the typical Greek word for crying is kleo, kleo. And that's K-L-A-I-O. K-L-A-I-O, kleo. And it means to cry, to loudly cry, to lament or to weep in such a way. Okay? It's very clearly a a crying that can be heard, a loudness, okay? But the word where it says Jesus wept is not that word. Where it says Jesus wept in 35, it's da cruo. D A K R U O, da cruo. And what does that word mean? It it means a tear. A tear ran down his face. That's what it literally means. So if we've ever had this image of Jesus standing there weeping like they're weeping, it's not the right image. Jesus didn't stand there and just weep like they're weeping. And, And I know it feels good. It feels good to say that, oh, Jesus cried so we can cry. Jesus was sad that he died so we can be sad that he died. But, well, that's not good theology. That's not what John is trying to relate to us here. What John's trying to relate to us here is that Jesus was indignant in his spirit. What does it mean to be indignant? It means to be upset about something, to be mad about something, to be angry about something. But Jesus didn't sin. Never. So he was righteously indignant. He was righteously angry. He was righteously mad, like when he turned over. What's he mad at? Why is he angry and troubled? I think we can assume that he is angry and troubled because, I mean, this is the Lord of life sitting there and seeing what loved ones have to go through because of the devil, because of Satan, because of sin, because of that death is in this world because of sin. And Jesus knows the pain and the anguish that people go through. And yet a a tear runs down his cheek, not because Lazarus is dead, but because he knows his children have to suffer, and there's no getting out of this life without suffering. And yes, a tear runs down his face in his anger. Yes, what you got there, Luther? And um, Bible Amplified Version. Uh huh. He chafed in spirit. Chafed. There's a yeah. There's a good word. He chafed. So you clearly, you can clearly, and so this this is where I'm reading. You know, I'm reading the in our the RSV here as in my study always, and it says deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and none of these are wrong. That's not necessarily wrong. Is is that's why they I think they threw in the word troubled uh, because the idea if we are indignant or we're chafed, we are deeply moved. It's just how are we deeply moved? We're not deeply moved in sorrow. What we, we're, we're deeply uh, in, in the type, same type of sorrow that those who lost their brother were Mary and Martha he's deeply moved by his uh, righteous anger that they have to go through this in this sinful world he knows what's ahead he knows the cross is ahead He knows that, but he also knows that they have a cross ahead too he knows we all have a cross ahead of us there's no getting out of this world without a cross of some kind, shape, or form. Yes, so I think that brings a whole new thought to this idea Jesus wept. Yes. I missed where the every my word yes. that, what, when was that used? That's the word that is used where it says deeply moved and troubled. So or if yours says angered or chafed, that would be the Greek word. You would substitute it right there. When you look it up in the Greek. It literally just uses. The word, that when we take two or three English words to say deeply moved and troubled in spirit, it took one word in Greek. And that's what it means. It means, and it's the same word that's used when Jesus is scolding people righteously, when he's angry righteously, when he's sternly warning people. You know, it's the same word. Fascinating, isn't it? What we can learn from bringing a little Greek to the the study. So, uh... We see the, the the circle is complete here. Jesus has said, uh, you know, where have you laid him? They said, come and see. He's deeply moved. He's definitely deeply moved. People can see that he's moved. People can see that his type of move, being moved looks different than Mary's and Martha's. There's this. There's this grief. His is not grief. His is righteous anger. Okay. Jesus is not grieving. May it never be. He's the Lord of life. What does he have to grieve over? He knows the. He, he's God. Okay. He's not grieving. So let's don't let our theology think that oh Jesus grieved. It's okay for us to grieve. No, it's not. It, we're human, so we do grieve. <laughs> Jesus didn't. Okay. But he is the strength. He is the resurrection. He's the life. He's who can get us through our grief. Okay, we can't short circuit grief in this world. He never sternly scolded Mary and Martha and said, "Why are you grieving? Why are you crying? Don't you know? I'm you know your brother." He never does that. He never does that. He he knows their tender human nature because he created their tender human nature. Yes, question. Well, it's saying here that he Jesus wept. If he was grieving, why did he wept? That's what I was trying to say here with this word. He didn't weep like they wept. In the Greek it says they wept by crying tears of grief loudly, lamenting. But his weeping was simply a tear. Okay, He's an emotional being. Jesus is human as well as God. In his humanity he's emotional. But your emotions can be driven by different reasons. And what John's trying to point out to us is that his emotion is driven by his knowledge of good and evil, the fact that his children have to go through such pain, and he's going to do something about that. Okay? So now, we can see how we're getting ready to turn the page, and we'll pick up next time, because we're already about out of time. We're going to pick up next time in verse 38, is it? Verse 38. Then we'll see that same word again you look at verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. I, I got to tell you, I, I would have just loved to have seen that. Uh, I want to go back and watch. Is there, I don't know if there's a movie that has this scene in it, but I want to go back and watch it if there is. And I want to see what the movie maker did with Jesus' emotions right there. I want to see how, if they, if they caught that righteous indignation, or whether they just caught a meek, mild-mannered, you know, weeping like they did, because there is definitely a difference. Uh, So, we'll save the raising of Lazarus, which is the seventh sign, the seventh great sign of Jesus in John's Gospel for next week. What We covered a lot here, a lot of ground here today. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Yes. My new RSV changes the shortest verse in the Bible.
1: Oh, really? What does it say? It says,
0: Jesus began to weep. Oh, how about that? So almost a little more like only a tear, because he just began to. Yeah. Jesus began to yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So, he began to, but doesn't just do it. Yeah, uh-huh. that's interesting. Maybe caught in some scholarship there that saw that mm-hmm. he wasn't fully crying like they were crying. Yeah. But good. Any other thoughts? Comments? questions. Thank you so much for being here today. Let's let's close in prayer. Dear heavenly Father, we are so thankful for time together with one another and with your spirit, and we thank you for opening your precious word to us today. Pray that uh, in this study that, that nothing I say would lead people uh, wrong or astray and that you would just by your power of your spirit bless our hearts and minds with the truth of your word. Help us to a vision for life eternal right here, right now, and what that can mean to us in this present world and how we view death. So teach us, guide us, lead us. And we give you all praise and glory. Uh, we, we glorify the Son Jesus Christ who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. This has been forming the spirit within I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.